Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. And welcome back for 2020 and another great year of books, writing and literary culture from Australian authors. Today's great conversation is with Laura McPhee-Brown. Laura is a writer, a social worker and counsellor whose work has appeared in publications like Mianjin, Kill Your Darlings and Archer. And today, Laura will be joining me to discuss her debut novel, Cherry Beach. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, we record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, uh, stolen land, unceded land, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land. Their stories are the original stories, and I want to pay my respects to them. On Final Draft, we explore the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. Now, here on the Great Conversations podcast, you have a chance to listen to the complete interviews and hear more of the discussions and discover these, these fantastic new books. Cherry Beach is the story of a friendship. Hetty and Ness have been friends since childhood, and now they're in Toronto, discovering something of life and of the, their selves. It's a story of discovery, a story of loss, and I absolutely cannot wait to share it with you. It's already a highlight of my year. So join me as we discover Laura McPhee-Brown's Cherry Beach. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Now, Cherry Beach is the story of a friendship. Hedy and Ness have been friends since childhood, and now they're in Toronto discovering something of their life and their selves. That's a pretty simple intro um and i think laura it fails in many ways to capture cherry beach but i wondered then how you introduce cherry beach to people yes um well i'm not particularly good at it i don't think but um i i think i just sort of say that it's about um close friend a close friendship between two young women and um i do often say that one of the well the protagonist is in love with her best friend um and, yeah, they go over to live together overseas in Canada and kind of from there their friendship changes and um, they learn a lot about themselves and, yeah, that's probably as much as I can say. I'm going to do something that is just absolutely dreadful for radio and talk about the cover because as you were talking there, it, it yeah. occurred to me there's something about this this beautiful cover, the paintings by Emma uh, Curry. That, yeah. that actually introduces the book in a wonderful way that you can't appreciate until you've read it. You've got this sort of stylized, abstracted picture of two women and mm. the, the way the colours and the shapes come together. It's You can't tell where one begins and the other ends, but then they're mm. also very separate and distinct. And I think that, that says something about Cherry Beach that won't make sense for people who have not yeah. read it yet. <laughs> That's true, yeah. And I think um, when we finally decided on that cover and that piece of art... Um, my editor also said, you know, there's a possibility that that could actually just be the main character or the protagonist, Ness, and her shadow. So there's different ways, there's so many ways you can look at that painting and um, I guess each person would have their own interpretation once they've read, but you wouldn't really get any of that before you read it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, from the outset, I noticed that Ness's idealisation of Hetty um, she sees her friend as effortlessly wonderful in all the ways that Ness feels she's not. And that's really apparent from right from the very beginning and the language that she mm-hmm. uses. It has this effect of, of making Ness automatically kind of heady subordinate in things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it perhaps clouds her vision on what she has to offer 
both within and outside her friendship with Hetty. Mm. Can you talk to me a bit about that, the role that self-image, its powers and its dangers plays in Cherry Beach? Yeah, well, um, I think I did want to write about that, I guess, being friends with someone from a very young age. So you grow together and you, you, you start to understand who you are together and that can be challenging because it means that the dynamic is part of who you understand yourself to be. But um, finally, when Ness gets to kind of be, you know, find out a bit more about herself in Toronto and make other friendships and relationships, I think she realises that there's just more to her and that her dynamic with Hetty, I mean, it's never kind of um, really spoken about or, or written about in the book, but I think she kind of realises she's been held back and... Um, I think that's really common in long-time friendships and there's such beautiful parts of being friends with someone since you were little, but also it can really, um, yeah, cloud you in your mind for other people and um, who you are because, you, I mean, for me in my life, I've compared myself to other people compulsively and I think um, the person that's closest to you is going to be the one you compare yourself to the most, so... It struck me also that a part of that that sort of beautiful dynamic of having a friend for so long mm. is that um, so much goes unspoken, and we kind of we we mm. idealise that we we have this idea that we know each other so well, say mm. that we we finish each other's sentences, but something about that, and it it really gets uh, it really gets sort of brought to the surface when. Hetty and Ness move into the share house and she's making, Ness is making new friends and very mm. explicitly exploring herself in a way that she doesn't with Hetty. And mm. and I noticed, I noticed that danger in that both of them had failed to really articulate things and on mm. one, one level they knew each other, but on the other they didn't know each other at all. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's so, well, it's sort of like, to me, a bit inevitable if you grow up with someone because you're learning about how to communicate and how to have healthy relationships, but that relationship's already established. So you might get into patterns that if you met later in life, you could actually, you know, have an entirely different kind of dynamic and friendship with this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me as a person, I've actually, you know, found that as I get older, I'm much more likely to establish a really strong friendship with someone from the get-go because I know myself better, they know themselves better, We've had practice at communicating. So, um, yeah, I think Ness was certainly starting to realise she had so much more potential, but still not, you know, very much at the beginning of that um, realisation in the book. But, yeah, and, and yeah. For, for the reader or for myself as a reader, I found Cherry Beach was a was a book that brought these these beautiful realisations to the surface. And maybe that's the first one that I would share with people is this idea that, you know, don't, don't assume and don't leave things unsaid because you think the other yeah. person is just going to know. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's important to do that, I think, because otherwise you will you will assume something about their position on whatever you haven't told them, but mm. you've not given them a chance to to actually, you know, talk to you about it. Yeah, as you say. Yeah. Now, Hetty and Ness, the, they've travelled to Toronto to escape to adventure, to discover more about themselves. I wondered, have trips like this become 
an essential part of of growing mm. up of the the adulting process yeah well i've been right actually writing something about that um well i think for me i mean i've just been so lucky i've been able to go and travel and live in a few places and um i i lived in manila in the philippines when i was a bit younger um for six months and then uh obviously toronto and just traveling as well to a lot around asia and it was very, um, I think I learned a lot, particularly in the Philippines, a lot about myself and a lot about just understanding the world in a completely different way. And that was just, um, I think, really helpful for me as I was growing up. Um, I think we're just going to have to rethink all of that, though, because we can't be flying around the world when we know the carbon footprint and particularly for Australians, we're we're isolated from a lot of the rest of the world. Um, yeah, so it's going to, I think it will be different in the future. And there's a lot that we can learn, like back here in Australia as well, that I think we don't necessarily learn about or involve ourselves in because we just think we have to get away. So. There is definitely that huge amount of privilege that comes with with travel mm. and with being able to to stay and live in different places. And I've, I've, yeah. I feel where you're coming from because I've been so fortunate in having those opportunities myself. Mm. And it, it also makes me wonder: does it create any sort of divide, or or just just even an interesting juxtaposition between people who choose that and people who, for circumstance mm. or otherwise, don't choose that? Mm. I think it just. Yeah, it definitely does, um, which is, a, you know, you sort of try to be mindful of that if you're talking to people who haven't sort of been able to have those experiences. But, um, yeah, I don't know what kind of divide, but I think, like, there's certain things that I've only been able... I feel like I've only been able to experience when I was not at home um, and, I, and things I learnt about how to be away from your home, um, but in a very privileged way away from my home. I wasn't um, fleeing my home. I was just choosing to be away. Um, that might make me wonder, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer it, but I think there is something there. A divide, yeah. So on arriving in Toronto, Ness notes to herself, that I was standing on the edge of something, next to Hetty, but a little bit alone. And it could have been a cliff or a diving board. I was really struck by this image. Um, and one thing that struck me was a, a big difference, uh, especially for the way we live or, or the way Ness was going to live her life, is not in the resulting fall from the cliff or the diving board, but in whether a choice was made to go over or not. Like that diving board sort of implies you're there, you're choosing, you mm. want to take that plunge, whereas the cliff maybe not so much. Mm. What do you think about that idea of being conscious and making choices as opposed to letting sort of circumstance wash you, wash by? Mm. Um, well, I think you so, sort of with that decision to, to jump, which I think they did do, they didn't just fall off the cliff, um, was was making a, a conscious decision, but then making a decision to let circumstances then be the kind of what, you know, to guide the rest of their time. So they, were, they sort, of, sort of decided to go over there, but really didn't make that many plans and sort of thought, you know, we should do it, but we, but we want to see how it goes and we won't plan or try to guide 
actual experience when we get there. So that sort of, um, I think, has, well, for me in my life, I've always been the kind of person who just, well, probably because I'm very lucky and I've never really suffered very much, I've been able to really take risks and plan to an extent but not really worry about what might happen if I don't plan it completely or I just see where it goes. So I think that was just coming from me, you know, knowing that that's a way that you can do things if you're lucky enough to. Um, And I think that's what they were doing. Yeah, a bit of both. Mm. I think this is, is probably as, as good a segue as I'm, I'm going to get to, to <laughs> ask you something that's a, a, bit, a point of personal curiosity. Yeah. And I will also just, I am, I am speaking with Laura McPhee Brown. We are discussing her debut novel, Cherry Beach. And in both the image of the cliff and the diving board, there's, I guess it's implied, especially with the diving board, that we'll be landing in water. And the image, mm-hmm. of, the image of water is everywhere in the novel. Each of the chapter names... Uh, are bodies of water or meeting places, uh, the beach of the title. And then there's the scene of the water ribbons later in the novel where Hetty tells us, I don't want to ruin something that was living happily on its own, sort of that, mm. that fragility that, um, that exists in that ecosystem. What does water mean for you in Cherry Beach? And I realise how close I'm skirting to some spoilers here. <laughs> um, oh, well, I, I think, well, in the book, so... Uh, because I, I love water and I love being in water and that's always been something that's been really wonderful for me and therapeutic and um, reminding me how sort of insignificant I are, I am in a good way, um, particularly the ocean. But um, I think because when I, I came, when I was living in Toronto, I just couldn't get over um, how uh, Lake Ontario just, seemed to be like the ocean to me. It was just so big and I you couldn't see the other side and it just like I just had to keep reminding myself it was a lake. I mean it's obviously a great lake and it's very big and and water comes from the ocean into it. But um I could I just couldn't quite understand that it wasn't the sea. And um also going over to Toronto Island you know, that there's beaches there and there's beaches in Toronto and so I just thought, well, if there's a beach, there's, there's got to be the ocean. I couldn't understand a beach on a lake. But, um, yeah, so I kind of just wanted to explore that and then decided to have a character who loved water, to be honest, <laughs> so I could kind of keep talking about that a bit. Um, and, yeah, and then, like, the scene back at the Yarra River... Um, in, there's a flashback to the scene at the Yarrow when they're younger um, and I grew up in Warren Diet and so I was always at the river um, so just scenes around water for me I can just um, write about very easily and I think there's just something about a human at one with, with a body of water that just shows how much we don't really have control over things, you know, that sort of the water is always going to do what it wants and we just have to kind of go along with it. And I think if if we were to take an unexamined view, water just seems like this singular thing. I mean, I've it's it's raining terribly in Sydney at the moment, so I've got water yeah. I've got water all over me. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the chapter titles, you remind us of the different ways that water exists and the dynamics of water and mm. and, and very much um the way those things can operate uh, 
as as metaphors and and aspects of our life, which it was mm. just, it was just really wonderful um, encountering that at the beginning of each chapter. Yeah, I think that was also. You've just reminded me before the um, that there's there's a bridge in Toronto, and and I think I I talk about it in the book, but it has a um, a quote sort of written in yeah. um, letters above. I don't even know the words for it, but um, yeah, of the E. Or, no, I'm not sure what it is, but it's um, this river I step in is not the river I stand in, which is a. I, I just when I saw that, I just loved it so much, and then kind of. I didn't know, but that's a, Her- a quote from Heraclitus, who is a um, philosopher, and um, and that's basically just kind of saying that everything, yeah, all is flux. Everything will be changing forever. You can't stop the change. You can't stop the river from moving. So you know, um, just accept it, I guess. Um, yeah, but that. Um, kind of was another reason why I wanted to write about water in re- relation to Toronto. Uh, yeah. Very early in my days uh, at 2SER, uh, I was given some some training and some advice about the idea that radio also uh, kind of works like a river. And the idea was oh. the idea was to remind us that the listener, the people that are tuning in, the whole reason that you and I are talking, um, we don't know when they're gonna when they're gonna yeah. jump in. Yes. It's That's co- so true. Constantly. Well, you've just reminded me of that by doing a little reminder of who you're talking to because someone could have just started listening. Exactly. So I should yeah. I should tell people that you are Laura <laughs> McPhee Brown and your debut novel is Cherry Beach, yeah. uh, and that this yeah. is this is final draft. Mm. Yeah, that's it's so true. Yeah, radio is like a river. <laughs> now, mental health is an important thread throughout the novel. Now, I don't want to spoil any of the story except to note that our mental health plays just this huge role in the ways that we tell our stories. And the, mm. idea, the idea of an unreliable narrator is always a ripe topic for discussion in literature. Mm. Ness's telling is, is coloured from the outset by the way she, she idealises uh, Hetty, by her anxiety that she doesn't meet up in many ways. But mm-hmm. it, also, it also struck me that all of our tellings, they're essentially unreliable until we take that time to connect and to understand the place where the storyteller is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I I did. When I was starting to write it, for some reason, I didn't want to write it in the present tense. I wanted to, so I was writing from Ness looking back on it, but from uh, just a few years later, I sort of just became like that um, because I wanted her it to be a... Pa- she was remembering how enamored she was by Hetty and, and how it was at the time, but also there was a small element of her being able to explain that in a way you wouldn't be able to really mm. explain it if you were in it um, to an extent, I think. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that kind of um, made her a little bit more reliable. Um, but there's a... Yeah, it's hard to talk about that without kind of maybe giving a spoiler, but... Um, I just really find that interesting, the whole unreliable narrator as well, because in my work as a social worker in the past, I've worked with people who hear voices and um, uh, may have a diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or um, having a psychotic break or bipolar. But, um, But I think for those people, a lot of the time, 
as soon as they get that diagnosis or as soon as they tell someone about their experience, they're seen as an unreliable narrator in their own life. And mm. that is very, you know, I can imagine that would be very, very difficult and confronting and would make you feel angry and sad and confused. And I just really don't know if that's even true because who's to say that what someone experiences just because it's not, you know, what the majority of us hear or see or experience that it's not real. Um, and yeah, I kind of wanted to, to kind of explore that a tiny bit in the book as well. Um, because yeah, we just all, I think just that curiosity and wanting to know, understand someone's experience rather than just assuming that it's, it's unreliable or it's this or it's that is the most important thing we can do as humans. Yeah, you had me thinking so much about this, and I, I actually was thinking of a very opposite um, sort of scenario where mm-hmm. when you meet someone who seems so confident or the person mm. who, who will tell you exactly the way things are, and, and, and mm-hmm. those people may seem very reliable, but really when you think about the, the telling of a story, confidence is about pairing away all of the little pieces of the story that don't fit. and. Mm. Which and, is maybe the most unreliable story, isn't it? Yeah, it's you're scared away. Yeah, this incredibly blinkered story, and yeah, and that was really telling for me because, um, especially, I mean, not particularly from Cherry Beach, but when you look at uh, the way men can often um, put forward their stories in a in a confident, I am certain of this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, mansplaining is that <laughs> that's why there's that term, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. Like, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there with that. No, that was that was actually a really perfect sort of <laughs> synopsis of what I was getting at there. Ma- mansplaining is just the most toxic example, and it's almost like a coping mechanism for men. I think they're sort of like, right, I'm just going to start explaining something because I don't know what else to do. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't be vulnerable and just be in the wash of, you know, not quite knowing. It's yeah. Being yeah. being reliable be, means being simplified and yeah, yep, and, and having it's black and white mm-hmm. almost, isn't it? Yeah. And the very the very toxic part of it is when challenged, it then becomes a sort of an mm. anger response and mm. and all the mm. things that come with that. And I, and that's often about the person, isn't it? It's their mm. vulnerability coming up. Yeah. yeah. I want to take us to what I thought was a really happy place for as we wind up our conversation, Laura, because I also couldn't mm. help but notice the love and this joy in books and stories that exudes a novel. Mm-hmm. Faith tells Ness that the only thing in the world that she truly enjoyed doing was reading, and she talks about mm-hmm. how if she could just have a job where she just read books. Um, now, yeah. I, I'm, I don't get paid to do Final Draw. I'm a volunteer like so many yeah. people in community radio, but this is as close as I get to that job. Yeah. <laughs> Dill, Dill is writing this book about uncommon men because he hopes, no, I guess not so much for literary success as that the men from his life might read it and understand something of him and yeah. of themselves. Can you tell me uh, something about the way books infuse your life and creativity that's sort of shining through in Cherry Beach? Yeah, oh, look, well, I've always, I mean, I think I wrote that bit of faith because that to me, I've never really loved anything else apart from reading since I was tiny. And I, I, it's, it's funny now because reading these days in my community sort of is cool, 
but when I was little, it was not cool and nobody really understood why I just only really wanted to go home and read my book. And I just, yeah, it's just such a funny difference now for me that I can be proud of being a reader and, and it's almost like a status symbol, well, not a status symbol, but it's like a, it's it's seen as really, yeah, interesting. But, um, yeah, so always read a lot and um, just, I guess, when I started trying to write as well, I think it was just because I just knew how much books had affected me and, and been so, um, I just learnt so much about the world and myself through reading and, yeah, a way of expressing things about myself that I don't really express to people when I'm talking to them. It's sort of nice to show little bits of yourself through writing that, um, and fiction, I think, you can you're not writing necessarily writing a character that's you, but it's kind of inevitable that something of you will come through, even if it's just something in the voice. Or So, yeah, it's a bit of self-actualization, I guess. Um, <laughs> I absolutely yeah. love it, I and I feel where you are coming from there. And I, I love the idea of, of Dill's book, and, I mean... Yeah. If it doesn't, if it doesn't come to exist in the world, I might have to write it myself. Oh, it, yeah, it you feels. Should, you should, yeah. It feels like the way the way he encapsulates it. It feels like something that is so necessary because yeah. I think some people can live their lives like there's only one book and you're just rereading it over and over again. And this yeah. idea that there are so many books just enriches your life so much. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yep. I really could, I would be happy just to read in bed for the rest of my life, but that isn't really acceptable. So I just do it as much as I can. Every now and then get up and, and a cup of tea or a cup of yeah, coffee. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What a fabulous uh, way to, to finish our conversation, Laura. I am speaking yeah. with Laura McPhee-Brown. Her debut novel is Cherry Beach. Um, and it is it is a magnificent novel. It, it has brought oh, so much thanks. to the last few months of my life. Um Thank you so much. That means a lot. That's it for this great conversation with Laura McPhee-Brown. Laura's debut novel is Cherry Beach, and it's out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. And the show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with us, the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, you can give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and on Facebook. Look for the tag at Final Draft 2 ser And if you want more great conversations, just hit subscribe wherever you are listening to this, whichever podcast app you get your podcast from. Uh, and if you are enjoying it, I would love if you could give us, um, give us a rating. It does actually help us appear in other people's searches if they want to discover new books. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading.